I'm Cameron Harold, the founder of the Second in Command podcast. Really quick, before we jump into today's episode, you need to know about two important ways that we can help you and your company grow. Number one, check out the COO Alliance. It's for COOs, presidents, VP ops, or whoever is your company's second in command to the CEO. The COO Alliance is the world's leading community for the second in command, and it gives COOs the tools and connections to grow themselves and the company. Head over to COOalliance.com to learn more about our members and the results, the program, and our 10x guarantee. If you qualify for membership, you can set up a complimentary call with our team to discuss if it's right for you. I'll tell you about number two in a bit, but first, let's start this week's episode. Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Our guest today is the COO of Lawlytics, Anita Malik. Anita has over 15 years of experience leading operations, marketing, and product development at a number of startup organizations and also at Arizona State University, where she served as deputy director for the school's Business Journalism Institute. Her operational excellence and digital background have helped her lead two Arizona startups through successful acquisitions as COO at Clear Voice and COO at Lawlytics. Anita is also passionate about creating communities for social change. She did this as founder and editor of East West Magazine, a nationally acclaimed print and online publication focused on the Asian American experience. She was the recurring segment guest on NPR's Tell Me More with the editors of Latina Essence and others to discuss our country's changing demographic and the untold stories. More recently, Anita built digital communities for change as a 2018 nominee for Congress. She's also a board member for Moms in Office and the National Council for Jewish Women, Arizona. Her most important role, though, is a mom to eight-year-old Wade and seven-year-old Avery and a fur baby, Marky. Anita, welcome to the Second Command podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, really looking forward to um, to talking to you about this. And, and I'm going to jump right into the most important thing first, because it was something that kind of dawned on me. We're doing this um, this interview right now at 6.30 in the morning, Arizona time. You have mm-hmm. an eight-year-old and a seven-year-old that are no doubt sleeping and probably going to wake up at some point. Right. And you're running, you know, a CEO of a business and you're running teams globally. How the hell do you juggle it all? For real. Seems so cliche. And so just like, of course, she's going to say that, but it's the truth It's just being organized. It's really about, you know, understanding. Okay. So like I got up this morning, you know, I often do calls at this time. We are like you, you mentioned a global team. So we have teams in India. We have, we are owned by an Australian company. So time zones are are kind of a battle uh, here, but I often am, am up early and I know, okay, a child might get up during a meeting. So what do I need to do to prep for that child to be able to like be self-sufficient to get breakfast going? So I kind of do that prep, cut some fruit, put some vitamins out, you know, I mean, whatever it is, I've just gotten, you get into those routines and you you learn to adapt. I think that's one of the biggest things for any COO is, is really being flexible because things are shifting uh, all the time. I've been a COO, particularly with startups. I love startups. And so you know how fast moving those are and um, things change every day. So you've got to be flexible and adaptable in, in, in all areas of your life, I think, to make it work. So and, and it, you're right that everything does kind of change, especially in that startup environment. How many employees now do you have um, in Lawlytics? 
We have, um, we're at about 65 right now. So we've kind of grown from, you know, when I started, we were probably just under 30. Um, and we've really increased on the product and engineering side. So you're, you're at a stage now in a business cycle where the employees are joining a real business. You know, they're they're expecting us to have the systems and some of the processes in place. And sometimes some of these employees aren't that adaptable to change. They're not as flexible. They're expecting you know, stuff to be going down in, in that straight line. How do you how do you work with them on that? And how do you help employees understand the need to adapt and be flexible? You know, that's to me, that's a core of the hiring process to really start. Um, I let my I've really developed a hiring process within the organization where they people go through te- to through tiers of levels of interviews so that they get to really obviously the managers are comfortable with them, but they get to meet the team members. And then I have the final conversation usually to kind of have a gut check. But for me, it's really that. It's exactly what you said is I I make sure they understand that. I look at those traits. I think doing this for so long, I've been able to recognize who can truly adapt to a, a startup environment. Because yes, we may seem to the outsider because we were acquired and we have this big company, you know, global company um, as our parent company that it's no longer a startup, that it's a little bit more corporate-y and all that. Not true. And so I'm still looking for that personality that I think can that can truly be flexible and adaptable and understands change. And we really make that clear throughout the process. As they come in, you know, we make sure that it's something I've done with my team across the board really is people get change fatigue. Um, and I noticed, you know, over the last year, we were really changing things all the time. I have a ton of agenda items I want to get done, things I know that it will prove the efficiency and scalability. But I take these intentional pauses in that because you can start to see it build up. And so we definitely, you know, see that change fatigue. And so those intentional pauses also help the new hires. So they see that there's a flow here, that we're not constantly going to change your everyday. That's especially true in that entrepreneurial environment. Is your the CEO, are they pretty entrepreneurial as well in terms of, you know, the the flavor of the month or the flavor of the week? Yeah. You know, I think in both times I've been a COO, both CEOs, um, and I had co-CEOs at Clearvoice, so two. Uh, in startups, it really is that entrepreneurial mindset, right? It's a founder that came in that really was like, I'm going to create something. And then they they're really the CEO of a growing company. And so that I think that essence of being a startup founder, bootstrapping all that, and you know, changing and trying to see what the market's doing today versus the next day, I think that sticks. I, you don't really lose that. Um, you know, currently we've gotten into that vibe, and you, you get you've got to get into it for it to work. Where okay, let's have the the vision, the long term plan, the six month goals. You know, let's do that as COO and CEO. While I run the day-to-day and there's those shifts that happen that are a little bit more in the weeds, but they're still happening. I love that. All right. I want to talk to you a little bit about the um, the hiring process that you mentioned as well. So walk us through what your traditional you know, recruiting and hiring process or recruiting, interviewing and hiring process would be. Yeah, I think it's really important at every level, no matter who's coming in and for what, that there's some kind of assessment, so to speak. I don't want to call it a test. Um, and so really, we do a normal phone screen. That's our first step. We have somebody, you know, from our team do and, and the operations team do a phone screen. Just make sure that there's no any red flags. Um, we don't look at resumes in the traditional sense, because a lot of our roles, 
I think there are people that come from different backgrounds. You know, we're in a time of the great resignation or in a time of people switching careers. And so we're really looking at skill sets and not, oh, you've done this job before. And so we look at that, do the phone screen, then they get an assessment. To me, that's important that the assessment's done before they start to meet the team. We are a busy group. And so it, it's really important. So we do that. Uh, then they come in and they meet with a couple different people. So they'll meet with the manager of that team, as well as somebody either that's above you know, that manager or at the peer level, just to get another gut check. And then if they like, if they're all happy and we want to move this person forward, it goes to the actual team members. So if they're coming in for the customer support team or the onboarding team, they'll meet members of that team which I think a lot of companies bypass um, mm-hmm. because they're afraid of what could be said or, you know, there, there's a lot of different things I've heard over the years and we don't do that. But to me, it's really important because everybody needs to feel good culturally that there's a cultural fit there. Uh, and then I'll do a gut check if everybody's like, yes, this is the person. I like the team, um, the team actually doing the round of interviews. I also think it probably creates a little bit more buy-in and, um, maybe kind of collaboration in the onboarding process as well. It's like, well, you interviewed them and you liked them then. So let's, you know, let's help make sure they're successful, right? There's got to be a bit of a, does that help? Does that happen? It really does because we really, we're still so small in in so many ways that we really count on everybody to help with those training initiatives in the beginning. So, you know, they'll have a, a two to three week training plan and every member of that team is asked to do something to help this person along to, to have one piece of their training. So it's really important that they've already feel like I'm hundred percent on board with this candidate coming in. Cause I'm going to spend my, my precious time um, helping them get up to speed. So yeah, it makes a big difference. All right. Now you changed your career or changed your companies in the middle of COVID. What the hell were you thinking? Like you, you went from, <laughs> or, or at least joined Lawlytics in the middle of COVID. I did. Yeah. Um, so you know, in, you read my intro or my bio there. I um, I ran for Congress in the middle there. So uh, tw- two cycles. And so kind of when I was done with that, um, I, you know, actually came across Lawlytics through a contact through actually someone that supported the campaign, someone that's in the, the VC angel community here in Arizona was like, you know, this company really needs a COO. Let's, you know, get you connected. And so it, I think Starting in the middle of COVID was interesting, more from the sake of we were all, it, I had been about a year into COVID um, or six, seven months. And mm-hmm. I was like, I don't know what the future holds, right? I Here I am in kind of in this gap in my career. So I was having the conversation thinking, you know, we'll all be back in offices at some point. I've got to kind of get there, start having these conversations. Uh, and then when I started, right, it was all remote. To this day, I've not met most of the employees, um, and I never met my CEO for about six months after I joined. So, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking, but I was terrified by that. I was terrified that how am I, what I feel like I'm very good at as a COO and why I kind of end up in this position always is building teams and and a culture that is really team-centric and not individual-centric. So that helps the mission of the company. And I'm like, I don't know how to do that remote. It really stressed me out. Um, and I think I also had to prove something walking into this company. Who had, everybody had been kind of doing their thing and feeling good about it. So why is she suddenly coming in um, to change things, right? I think they were afraid of that change. Some of the core employees that had been with our CEO for you know six, seven years. 
Yeah. So the two together, it was just, it was really daunting. I will admit it. I don't often get afraid of things, but I was like, it's a challenge. I can do it. But it was, it was daunting. So there's lots that's been talked about that kind of in the first 90 days, right? And, and what, what the role is when you're coming in as a senior officer in the first 90 days and how you don't really want to upset the apple cart. But all of that was written in the pre-COVID kind of coming into an office environment, spending time with people, going for lunch and coffees with people, like just getting to know each other. That didn't freaking happen. Like, so, so how did you do that? And what were you cognizantly doing to, um, to get yourself onboarded in, the, in a good way? You know, I really made sure that I connected with everyone. And I know that sounds so simple, but it was really something that I did consistently over the first year with the company so that every person in the company, it takes a lot of time, really got to get to know me. But then I also took what I thought was, you know, they had different types of team meetings and group meetings. And I noticed that the company seemed fragmented, like this team was over here, the other team was on the other side, they weren't really communicating in a way that was good for the company or the customer, but they were all in ops. And so I started to bring those together. I started to add some get to know you type exercises to my like ops meetings, which were like everybody now in the company does a TED talk at some point in uh, in an ops meeting. And it's just meant something that I think has gotten people to come together. So that was really me trying to build the team. As far as their trust in me and their belief, you know, I had somebody, you know, I had one person about six months in said, you know what, I have to just say, I've learned so much from you. Because when you came in, I thought she's just a politician. What can she do? Um, and, and that was really hard to hear, but I understood it. Like if I was in their shoes, they didn't know much about me. We never met in person. Um, and so building the trust with them was really just, I had to do the work. You know, I came in and probably a couple months after they had their first product release that they've had in years. And everybody was freaking out about how we're going to handle it and this and that. And I just kind of said, this is what we're going to do. It's going to be great. And there were so, we built so much excitement around it that that was kind of, it chipped away a little bit at that. She doesn't know what she's doing or who is she type Mm. of thing. And then I started to roll out process improvements. I started to roll out um, support services for our customers. And I did those all in a very methodical way in terms of not overloading the team. So everything was tested. They were involved in the process, which I think is key. I made sure everybody's voice was heard. Um, and then it, you know, it just kind of through all that, you build that trust and that understanding that I'm not here to to make your lives miserable. <laughs> I'm here to actually improve it for everybody. So what about that's amazing. What what about the group of people that were vying for your job that then got to report to you? <laughs> How did you know that? <laughs> It's actually it's, um, it's strange because it happens at every mid-sized company for uh-huh. the first time where the CEO is now really for the first time hiring from the outside versus promoting from within, right? Right. And that was a new experience for me yeah. because, you know, my previous role as COO, I really helped them. We were an agency. I helped them rebrand and build that. And so I was they, there wasn't somebody else, right? Um yeah, that was challenging. There definitely was that. Uh, you, you nailed it. Um, it was it really the same thing. It did take longer, though, with those yeah. individuals to really prove out. But I think it's very simple, but listening goes a long way. And being able to kind of share transparency back. So, you know, if you're somebody that wants to be in my position and you feel suddenly cut out of everything, you know, true or not, that's the emotion that person will feel that now, well, I'm just not important. And just giving them that, that um, learning how each person works, giving them those responsibilities, you know, delegating, I think is so important in this role and something that I'm still always teaching myself. 
it's easy to hold everything. But I think that two-way communication, listening, understanding their concerns, making sure, again, people's voices are heard, it really does make a difference. It doesn't happen overnight. I don't want to make it sound like so easy, sure. uh, but it, you know, you have to keep at it. I think the minute you walk away from that line and you start to say, okay, you know, this isn't working. I'm just going to go do my own thing and not worry about it. It, it falls apart very quickly. I want to, I, I keep having these things I want to go back and ask about, but you keep mentioning other things that I'm intrigued about Sorry. So in terms of delegation. Delegation is one of the, the 12 modules in my investing your leaders course. And I've always been really keen on, on teaching people that. So what are your kind of systems around delegation to ensure that, um, you know, you get back the result you're looking for and, and that, you know, your team feel like they're being led in the right way. Can you give us some of your thoughts around delegation? Yeah, maybe I don't know if I have a system. I might need to <laughs> get that from you. But, you know, I think, it, like I mentioned, it's something that I'm always teaching myself. I will say I'm definitely a type A personality. I'm a perfectionist. And so it's hard for me to delegate. I do mm-hmm. it, It's but it's definitely something I have to think through. And, you know, one of the, probably the, if I had a system, what I'd say it really has boiled down to is getting people to communicate what they're interested in doing. So for example, I also run the marketing team and, you know, there's, it's just three of us. And so we go through everything that needs to be done long-term, just that week, the short-term. And I really kind of try to see where people's interests lie first. Sure. If I'm just handing stuff out, like you're going to do this, you're going to do that. And sometimes you have to do that. But if ideal situation, what's your interest? We have all these projects going on. Who's going to take what? And let them come to the table with a vo- with volunteering. I, okay, I'm an, I really want to do that. Or I want to help write that email. Um, and I've noticed that, that works because then they're going to do a better job. Then I'm not going to feel as much like, oh, no, I have to go fix things. Um, and they always know that I'm there to support them and I'm there to review things and look at things. So for me, it, it's really become that, you know, where where are you interested in and what are you going to step up to the plate to do? Obviously, I also just assign things. No, but what you're talking about is is core in a concept called situational leadership. It's actually one of the other concepts in the course, but situational leadership and delegation are tied so closely that if somebody's not into working on a project, like if they're not excited right. about it, don't give it to them, right? Because you're you're almost uh, pushing rope at that point. So I'll, I'll just give one of my think, my thoughts around delegation, but I really want this podcast to be about you, not me sharing ideas. So the, one of mine is that you Parkinson's law says that work expands to fill the space that we give it. So mm-hmm. when we delegate a project to people, we have to tell them how little time we actually want them to spend on it. Not how little time we think it'll take them, but how little time we want them to spend. Very similar to how little money we want them to spend, right? If I said to my assistant, hey, can you organize a dinner for six of us, um, you know, when I'm in Scottsdale, she could book us off at, you know, Fat Ox or at, uh, I can't even remember any of, the, any of the place, Ocean Club or something and have this crazy dinner and have all the wines being decanted. But what I really meant was, you know, can you book um, Uber Eats for six of us and we'll eat at my suite at the Royal Palms and we're going to have a working dinner. So I, I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't delegate clearly. And I also didn't give her a budget. Um, and I think that's important that when we delegate, we, we do that as well as what you're talking about is you know, considering that people are they into it or not. You, mm-hmm. you mentioned um, the the co CEO part and working with co CEOs. What was what was that like? And how did you balance? I mean, it's hard enough working with one CEO, or especially an entrepreneurial CEO. Right. How was it working with two? You know, it's definitely um, a challenge, and I don't think early on I understood the difference 
And so it, I think that was what was key was as I found out really who had what, almost the same thing, who was passionate about what area of the business, it made it easier for me to navigate. So, you know, mm-hmm. one was really passionate about the sales side and, and kind of the day-to-day operations. The other one was all about marketing and messaging and that type of thing. And once I kind of got through, because, you know, big decisions, they were in that room together with me and making them. So it was always kind of this like, but who's going to take it which direction and yeah. being able to then take my concerns to the right place um, was important. But yeah, it's definitely challenging. And I think understanding their relationship because they had their own, you know, co-CEO, as you can imagine, like it's not perfect. <laughs> There's definitely that that back and forth and, and those struggles. And being in the midst of that a lot of times often put me in the position just trying to get an answer. So kind of in it from the comedy perspective, just being like, ah, yeah, so what what are we, yes or no? Did, what, did we decide, right? And just kind of letting them, you know, debate it out often. So it was frustrating because I didn't think my voice as much as now was heard because mm. it was three of us versus the two really having that conversation. Um, but, you know, we got a lot done. It was just, I had to be a little bit more sneaky about it. <laughs> it was, I don't know if that's the right word, but, you know, really had to try to get in there with like, can we, can we make a decision, you know, let's boil it down. In, in some ways, it's not unlike the CEO-COO relationship at times for a lot of our direct reports, where our direct reports want an answer and they go to mom and they go to dad, right? Like, you know, like, hey, mom, can I have a cookie? Hey, dad, can I, what'd your mom say? Like, our, our kids play us off. And I think sometimes our employees do as well, where they know they're going to get a yes or they're, or they know they need a different opinion when they've already gotten one. How do you play out that with your team where... You know, there is something that is absolutely within your span of control or your responsibility, and you do could really make the final say, but they go to the CEO. How do you deal with that? We've, I think, done a great job with that um, at Lolitics just because we've had that conversation. The thing I love, right, my current position with Lolitics is CEO and I really have tr- gotten to a really transparent relationship where we can talk about these things. There's no like, no, you know, it's really about both of us growing in our roles, and that's kind of how we've positioned it. Mm-hmm. And that's been my concern always from the beginning, particularly coming in as somebody that, again, they're like, who is this person? Why is she coming in? You know, all those things. I want her job, whatever those those issues may have been. And so we've talked about that and he's not involved for the, like, for several reasons, but that's one of them in that the day to day. And so people don't anymore you know, after about six months of being on the job, they don't go to him. They understand that I'm moving those pieces. I'm making those decisions. I do obviously go to him with certain things and they don't feel that they need to go to the top, top. They feel like they can get their job done with me. And that just makes it so much easier and cleaner so that him and I have those conversations. If he has a concern, I'll bring it to the team, that type of thing. Yeah, and you're right. It does take a little bit of time to kind of socialize that. But once they're used to it, they're used to it, right? Yeah, exactly. So tell us a little bit more about Lawletics. What's the core of what your business does and, and who are your customers? And you know, what's an ideal customer for you? And then I want to go into some of your team and the organization itself. Yeah, for sure. So Lawletics, we create, we're the, kind of the foundation of a small uh, law firm's digital marketing. So we create the website um, and it's really the website, but it's a hub. We have our own proprietary platform that was designed specifically for attorneys. And again, those solo or small law firm practices. So, you know, three to five lawyers, oftentimes there's just the one trying to go out and hang their shingle and really start their own business. And so it's really about empowering these small business owners that are attorneys to not get uh, over 
charged for their marketing to not lose control of their marketing and have to kind of constantly be waiting on an agency, that type of thing to really give them the tools to do it themselves. Interesting. It's funny. I, I So I run an organization called the COO Alliance and mm-hmm. two of our members are big in the marketing space for law firms, which is, oh. I didn't, I, I just didn't realize the industry was that big. So one of them is called Hennessy Digital and they're a, an SEO shop that just does SEO for personal injury lawyers. And the other oh, wow. one is called SMB and it's Bill Hauser's group and he's got hundreds of, but he teaches them more on the business and the operations side of things. Is it is it classic kind of the these domain experts like doctors and engineers and dentists and lawyers are really good at what they do, but they really suck at running a business. And I don't mean it as I don't mean it as a negative either, but it seems it seems like there's a big industry to help them. There is. And I think particularly on the tech side, right? Because it's, you know, if you, they didn't go to school for that, they went to school to, to do this specialty and they want to focus on that specialty and that's better for their business too. Yeah. And so I think what, what often and why our CEO, Dan Jaffe, started this company was, was that he's an attorney. And he felt like you you see that often, that if you don't understand what's happening in the digital marketing space and the tech behind it, it's easy for someone to say, hey, this is what you need to do. And, you know, you're overpaying and all that type of stuff. So he really wanted to see you know, when you're especially for these smaller firms, they don't have those kind of budgets. And so, you know, he really wanted to be able to provide something at a cost point that made sense um, and that did everything they needed to do. And so they wouldn't get in those positions. Yeah, I love that. Um, okay. And then you said you've got a global team. So what's the what's the kind of core makeup of um, Lawlytics? How many are, are North America based? How many are global? And what are what are each of the groups doing? And or is it mixed? Yeah, it's a little bit mixed. Um, so we are owned by an Australian legal tech company, uh, the largest in the world really owns a, a good chunk of legal tech. And we don't, you know, we don't have direct team members in Australia. So we interact with them. We interact with our sister companies who are all across the world as well. Um, and then our team in terms of core Lolitics employees were about half and half with the US and then India. So a lot of our product and engineering is in India. And then we have some product and engineering in the US as well. And any complexities with dealing with the um, the India group? I mean, it feels it feels truly like the world is flat and we're, we're now dealing yeah. with um, employees in all these different groups. What's the secret to working with teams in India and how is it going? I don't know if I know the secret, but uh, it's going great. It, we, you know, it's been that way since I joined. You know, we've just we've scaled that team up um, considerably, but it's, um, you know, I think it's, if you get over the time zone issues and you can adjust to that. Now we have members of our US team that are on the East Coast and it works great. And so it's worked out well that a lot of my product people in the US are East Coast. And so they have a great you know, working relationship. And you're right, it is flat, you know, with Slack and with all these other tools, it really doesn't feel like they're anywhere different. You know, um, we've not had that struggle. You know, I think there's some cultural things, which happens no matter what, when you're in that global situation that we've had to overcome and, and really understand how they're absorbing information from us. You know, if somebody on the US team puts in a ticket for something, making sure that we're very clear about what it is and that they, and we understand that you don't have to do it just because we put it in there, right? Like we need to talk about it, that kind of thing. And so that was really process based. Um, Yeah, it's not been, it's not been challenging really that I can think of. What's the cost savings? If you're hiring an engineer in India versus an engineer in, you know, middle America, what's the, is it 50%? Um, yeah, I'd say roughly, roughly that, um, you know, but just like everywhere else, India is going through that kind of that people move it, the market's great, 
right? Yeah. So, you know, it's not as much as people would think. It's just for us, it was really talent. I mean, you know, this is a, a group that we worked with before they were employees uh, separately as like consultants to the engineering team, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so it's, it was really something that they understand the, what we're doing here and that talent's really important. That's cool. Yeah. One of our CO Alliance members said uh, one of the meetings recently that they've got, I think 70 or 80% of their employees are in Bulgaria and Romania and um, somewhere else like Latvia or something. And they said that it's about 30 to 40% cheaper um, maybe 50% cheaper, but they pay more than market. Um, they pay about 15% more than they should or could so that the employees in that market feel so loyal. It's like, wow, you're right. like, you know, they're going around all their friends like, what? Like, how are you getting paid that? And it's almost like they're working for PayPal in San Francisco when they're not. Right. But I think we have to now in a way because we're also competing against the Bay Area, right? The Bay Area is now hiring talent globally, not just in the Bay Area. Exactly. Yeah. It's been really important to us to make sure that, that we're not, you know, undercutting anyone, both anywhere, really here or over there. It, it, and people feel like there's loyalty. One of the things I'm so proud of since I've been CEO, and I'm afraid to actually say it out loud because then I'll jinx myself. I haven't lost an employee. Um, I haven't had someone leave even during this time. So wow. that's really, that's really, really important. Especially during what's, what's being called the great resignation. So what do you think your secret uh -huh. is? What's working? It, I think it's really that alignment. So I think if you can align teams to really feel like they each are contributing to that overall mission of the company, people, you know, work because they have to work. Oftentimes not everybody's like, this is my passion, right? If you're not an entrepreneur person, but if you hire the right people that feel connected to what you're doing, and then you make sure that that they see how that actually happens in their day-to-day -day job they want to be at a place like that, right? It's just how we are as human beings. We want to feel valued. We want to be able to see an impact to what we're doing and spending most of our time on. Yeah. And so for me, it's that effort is to really just have brought the teams together, but then also be the person that can say, okay, where do we see if the trouble is coming up? Why? You know, is it because they're not hearing what's going on? Is it because they're not being feeling valued? And, you know, people think it's all about salaries and money. And it's not, it, it's really that feeling like a part of something bigger. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's, it's that. And I think it's also just actually giving a shit about them as humans, which I think mm -hmm. COVID is COVID has really accelerated for most companies. We had to give a shit about each other. Yeah. Whereas I think, you know, many, many don't, and that's who's getting people quitting. Right. Cause if you don't care about people, yeah. you don't align them. Um, I was listening to something Malcolm Gladwell was talking about yesterday on a podcast and um, you know, he's the, the author of The Tipping Point and Blink and um, what all of his other books. And he said that he feels like we're going to have to move back to the offices in some way more than we maybe are thinking because people are social animals and we're we're not getting that social need met as much. Do you see anything there or are they just getting the social need met with friends and family and they don't need it met with work? You know, it's a concern, I think, but I, I don't, I think there's enough of the population and particularly with ours, that people that are happy to be working at home, mm -hmm. you know, I think people do miss the social, they're probably getting it like with their friends and family, but if you can create some of that within just the digital workspace, you know, um, that you have with them, that virtual space, I think that helps as well. But yeah, I think it's a concern, right? We've seen, you know, mental health issues go up post COVID and during this time, and it's that isolation. So I haven't experienced it a lot with this team. And I think, you know, we're very lucky for that. Um, but yeah, I don't, if you asked me a year ago for that, we'd go back into offices. I say yes. And now I'm less convinced. I'm way less convinced. I've, 
friend of mine in Arizona, Jonathan Kaiser, and he runs a big real estate group and, and helping tenants uh, with their leases and helping them negotiate with big landlords. And he's like, dude, it's coming. It's a big, big, big wave of companies that are not going back to their offices and they're all renegotiating, getting out of leases or just they're, they're expiring. He's like, yeah. it's coming in a big, big wave. And it's it's weird. Like, yeah, I, I would have thought there's no way. And now, man, I, I talked to a, uh, a company in Colombia. They had 800 employees. And he said, pre-COVID, he never would have said yes to anyone working from home. And now he told all 800 to never come back to an office. 800 people, like, don't ever come back to work. It's like, what? All right, adapt and be flexible. We talked a little bit about, talk about the startup culture and what it's like being a COO in a startup culture. It's crazy. No, um, <laughs> I have this often joke that I say, uh, I don't know how I end up in this role. You know, I always, I like to fancy myself being a product person and a marketing person, but I always end up running operations. And I think it's, I think it's the, the biggest thing about doing it in a startup is really being on top of everything and that ability to const- to remember everything that's happening and be organized about it. And it's, you know, I think that's the case in larger organizations, surely, but you have a lot more maybe support around you. So for me, it's really being like, yeah, my manager of, of the customer success team might tell me something, but I'm going to go down to you know the person that's actually doing it because it, like we need to get into the detail. And so it's like being willing to just really constantly all day long shift gears um, and shift between projects, shift between you know teams, and and get into those weeds. Um, but I love that. I think I would be miserable if I was just kind of hearing from my direct reports and not really being involved in what's happening. What was it like getting acquired? I think you said you've gone through one or two acquisitions. What was that like? Um, yeah, two. And, you know, it's different both times, but, you know, in this case and, and actually in both cases, uh, the parent company's really been like, you do your thing. You know, we're not changing anything. We want you to kind of build out. Here's some goals. Here's some, some of that. And so that part's been similar and, and not something to stress about. The biggest thing is to the team, right? How teams react and, and ensuring people feel comfortable being as transparent as we can. Cause we're, you know, in current situation, we're still learning about our parent company. It's not been that long. We were acquired in uh, last fall. So around October, November. And, um, you know, if they don't hear from us for a month, they're like, okay, what's up? And it's like, well, we don't know anything different. Like we're just doing what they said. Nothing's changed. We're continuing to do this. You know, this has been interesting because we have a lot of sister companies. And so this time it's been for me trying to navigate that and and figure out where we can build partnerships and things like that. So it's added this other layer of of these sister companies, which is exciting, but a whole nother job, so to speak, uh, that you could add on. So we're actually looking at bringing in someone to just really do partnerships at this point. How about in terms of, of um, I'm going to say navigating, like navigating the politics or navigating the new group of people that you report to or report into, or, or like, mm-hmm. it's not just you and the CEO now, I would imagine there's like a, you know, a, a board or some kind of governance or, mm-hmm. um, or maybe even like cohorts at some of these other companies, the, the, the sister companies. How do you navigate all of that? That's got to be different as well. That it is. And I think that's where, you know, our, my CEO and I really kind of split that. Like, I'm just trying to run the day-to-day operations and keep people going and, and setting those goals and, and, and working through the product. And he's navigating that part of it. Um, and he has a good relationship. So our parent company is actually privately owned. Um, and so, you know, the head of that company uh, is, is really has direct communications with our CEO and they meet weekly and they talk about kind of the higher level vision 
And so it's been, there's been some navigating in terms of just kind of the operational finance side of, of it, because that's, that's a big part of the organization, but otherwise it's not been too challenging. It's more trying to get that face time. And now we have it regularly. And what about, what about your growth as um, I want to, I want to go through kind of your growth in the business world. And I also want to talk about kind of some of the growth and, and your lessons that you took from running for Congress. So just talk about some of your career uh, that mm-hmm. got you to be the COO the first time. And then, you know, what have you pulled from that into your second role? And then we'll talk yeah. about Congress. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, you know, what's interesting about my background is I actually, so I have a degree in journalism, uh, broadcast journalism, a master's, but I also have my undergrad degrees are in computer information systems and finance. So I've always kind of had this, these two parts and people were like, what are you doing when I was doing, you know, my education and going back to, to do journalism. And it was before this, um, we used to call it convergence, but it was really before the internet and before, you know, all the news organizations had to figure out how do I now, how do I communicate in this way and keep my business alive? Mm-hmm. And so it turned out to just be the best thing um, as we moved into the, the current digital world we're in, where I really have both of those sides. And that's what Clear Voice was about. And that's why I was so excited to, to help them create that company, because it was really about content marketing and creating that freelance marketplace um, for the gig economy, which was at the time just kind of a starting thing. And now we have, you know, COVID where gig economy is like, that's the life, right? Um, and so that was exciting for me. It was something that was able to bring those two things together. And I think that role really helped me grow in terms of, you know, I didn't go in saying I'm going to be a COO. I was leading the content team. I was doing the things that made sense with my resume. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was something that, you know, I realized and grew in how I can lead teams, how I can inspire people, how I can keep things moving and organized. And so that's just kind of how that that evolved. And that, that was a really, really great time for me. That's a huge growth for a leader as well when they realize that really their primary role is growing and aligning people. It's not doing stuff, right? It's it's mm-hmm. a weird shift as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you just like, we're like, what do you want to do today? I'm like, I always am like, oh, I just want to uh, no meetings and I'll just write something. I'll work on the emails. I just want quiet time. I say that, but then at the end of the day, right? Like at the end, you know, that battle lasts a day if that ever happened. And I'd be like, where is everybody? Let's talk. Let's see how you're doing. Let's, you know, so. Yeah. yeah, you're, you're migrating <laughs> yeah, your your um your pulls back towards the good areas. So, what about Congress? How did you how did you grow, and what lessons do you think you pulled running for Congress that you use now as a COO? I took when I ran the first time, and our, you know we had a, a great success with that. Really moved the needle here in this district, and so really took. Um, I was like, well, you just got to run it like a business. You just the marketing or the digital marketing. What's the big deal? And so I had a lot of people I had worked with in that in that space join my team and we really ran it that way. And um, I, I really wanted to see a campaign be about, you know, building a brand and everything you kind of do with the business. And so, but coming out of it, I really learned more about how to inspire teams. I think that's the biggest thing that I've brought to Lolytics and, and kind of going forward is, you know, I had the, one of the biggest volunteer organizations, you know, really in the state. And it was truly because we were able to figure out like, to me, the volunteers on a congressional campaign are the customers mm. because that's your power. Without them, it's really hard to get it done, right? Sure. You, you, yeah. Nobody knows who you are, that kind of thing. And so yeah. I think if you can treat it like that and, that and kind of take that approach to now back to business and say, okay, how do we create communities with our customers and how do we serve them better? But then also the our, our team, our employees, um, and really make sure, and that's what comes back to everything I've been saying about listening and kind of making sure people have a voice 
that was so critical in the campaign. And I've just really applied that to everything I'm doing here. You know, a lot of my team members, including, you know, in the C-level and, and our CEO, CEO is, is always like, you're just so diplomatic. So give me the, how should I handle this situation? You know, we will do these kind of sessions. And I'm like, I don't think I'm that diplomatic. I think I'm actually kind of silly and confused half the time. That's my own assessment. But I think it's, it's truly people forget to listen and then say, okay, let me ingest all the information and let me figure out a good way that way to handle this that works for everybody. And so that's those things like the campaign really helped me have confidence in that. Um, you know, as a woman, we're always saying we're not good at something or whatever. I own it now. I just say it. And I think the campaign gave me that as well. That's cool. Yeah, I love that whole about you know inspiring people and, and kind of creating that movement too. It's um I'm friends with Doug Ducey, who's is he still governor of Arizona? He he is, but this is his last term. So last term, yeah. So I've been mm-hmm. friends with Doug for about 10 years. Um and one of the things I really loved about him was that he took his lessons from the business world, from you know, Stolcone yes. or uh, Coldstone Creamery that he was founder of and really brought that into into politics. I'm gonna be curious to to, to talk to him when he's done and, and find out. You know, what are the lessons that if he was going to go back to Coldstone again, what would he now take from government back into Coldstone? I know he did it the one way. I'm curious, you know, on the other. All right. I want to go back to the the 21, 22 year old Anita Malik. And I want you to give yourself some advice that maybe, you know, to be true today, but you wish you'd known back then. Oh, wow. I think it is. It is that is just own what you're good at and have that confidence and don't let, you know, and speak up. Um, throughout that journey, you know, I've played so many different roles. I was a developer when I started, I've been a business analyst. I mean, I've done everything. And, you know, I think I often felt bad for asking for more or for standing up for myself or my team. Cause oftentimes I felt like I was like the mother hen with teams, you know, at every place I've been, um, and had this like bad feeling though, shouldn't have done that. And, and I would tell myself that there's nothing wrong with that. You're doing the right thing and you need to kind of be that leader and own it. That's awesome. Anita Malik, the COO for Funalytics. Thanks very much for sharing with us on the Second in Command podcast. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.